Welcome to Compound Ideas. Hosted by Ken Majmudar of Ridgewood Investments, this podcast will feature exceptional individuals to uncover deep insights into business, entrepreneurship, personal growth, investing, and multidisciplinary thinking so that you can learn how to improve your finances, find better investments, and pursue authentic lifelong growth, wisdom, and happiness. Learn more and stay up to date at compoundideashow.com. Today, I'm pleased to have co-CEO and Senior Managing Director at Valuation Research Corporation, PJ Patel, on the show. Like many of the clients I have the honor of working with at Ridgewood Investments, I think of PJ more as a peer, where I get to help support him in areas related to investments and finances, while we both develop and learn from each other in our respective areas of focus and expertise. Although my family and PJ's family are both from different parts of the same state, Gujarat in India, our stories and our journeys differ immensely. In this show, we discuss the differences between Canadian and US entrepreneurs and cultures, how 9-11 changed the trajectory of PJ's career, and how 50% of the role of a CEO involves supporting the success of the people around them. PJ, uh, welcome to the show. Great to talk to you today. And good talking to you as well. Let's start with your personal story. I know you're from Canada, and I've spent some time up there, but not really that much. I don't know that most people in the United States are really as familiar with Canada as probably, I think Canadians are more exposed to America, the big brother to the South or whatever you guys sort of refer to us as. But let's start there. So tell us about your personal story. Were you born in Canada? What was it like growing up there? Yeah, actually, I was born in England, spent the first five, six years of my life there, and then moved to Canada uh, with my family and grew up there, spent the next 20 years or so in the Toronto area. I went to college in Toronto as well at University of Toronto, and pretty quickly after that, decided to go to grad school and was looking still for something fairly local and moved to Buffalo, went to grad school for a couple of years, and then from there made my way to Chicago and then finally to the New York area and have been here ever since. So it's now close to 20 years, just over 20 years, I guess, in the New York area. And I guess I spent about 20 years in Toronto as well. Now, I know you're Indian, right? You're Indian origin. So what part of India does your family hail from and how did they end up in the UK? Our family's from a town called Nosari, which is about 100 miles north of Mumbai on the west coast, in Gujarat, on you know, the west coast of India. My dad's family, they started migrating to England and Canada in the late 1940s, early 1950s. You know, shortly after World War II, there, my family was in the electrical business in India, had an electrical store, did a lot of lighting and things of that sort. We're actually known as Lightwala, which is you know the light people. My dad's cousins and uncles moved to England and Canada in the late 40s and early 50s as there was a need for electrician post-World War II. A lot of men, you know, from England, Canada had died in the war and there was a need for electricians. And that was the trade that my dad's family was in. And so a lot of our family ended up in England to start. And then from there, migrated to Canada. They were primarily in the television business. So you think back to that time, TVs weren't as maybe simple as they are today, definitely not as light. They were in the electrical business, TV technicians and things of that sort. And there were a lot of men. They had a great workforce and became tradespeople. That's actually really funny. I think actually if people like the young kids today saw what our TVs look like, I don't think they would recognize them. In fact, I think I saw something 
like that on Instagram. And they were showing them objects you and I would know, and they were stumped. They didn't know what it was. Do you know what prompted them? I guess you were probably age five, so zero to five, probably. I don't know if you have any memories from that time, but what was behind the move to Canada, to the Toronto area? Just a better opportunity for us, for the kids. That's primarily what drove the move from India to England and England to Canada is just thinking that there'll be more opportunity for myself, my brother, my cousin, and things of that sort. And where in Toronto did you guys settle? Just uh, west suburbs, Mississauga, called Mississauga. It's a fairly big suburb just to the west of the city. So what would surprise Americans, let's say, who spent all their time in the United States? Obviously, we all know Canada. It's our neighbor to the north. But what would be the things that you would say would probably most surprise somebody who's never been to Canada if they go up there? Look, Toronto is in you know that part of Canada. There's a lot of similarities between the U.S. and Canada. But I'd say there's also a continuum. I mean, if you took Europe on one end of the continuum and the U.S. at the other end of the continuum. Toronto is probably closer culturally to the U.S. than to Europe, but there's still a lot of British influence. I look at myself, for instance, I play squash and squash is a British origin sport. And, you know, down here, a lot of times people say, oh, that's kind of odd. How'd you get into that? Well, I say when I was younger, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people play squash. I mean, it's a fairly common game that that's played up there. So there's a lot of other connections. Canadian or let's say British origin foods and snacks and things of that sort that are still available in Toronto. And slowly there's an Americanization, I'd say, of those things and much more today than there was when I was a kid. But there is still that influence of Great Britain in Canada and continues. But as you move further east, let's say to Montreal or Quebec City, they're probably closer to the European end of the continuum than they are to the U.S. And how about economically and the economic system and the system of government? Would you say there are any striking differences? America is much more capitalistic. I think in Canada, people do well, but it's very much sort of do what's right for the group as a whole. Again, there's a continuum there and it's Canada's probably a few feet over, a few pegs over in terms of being towards a, I hate to use the word socialist, government healthcare and a welfare system and things of that sort. Remember, I was up there for an industry conference five or six years ago, and there was a very interesting presentation by a reporter who basically said, in the U.S., when you have serial entrepreneurs, they keep going. They find their first company, found their first company, and they they make a lot of money, and then they move on to the second. Whereas in Canada, it's more kind of like, if you're an entrepreneur, let's say you get to a, a value or a number of, say, 50 million, and they sell, and you never hear from those individuals ever again. They go to the beach, and I think that's kind of reflective of the environment. There definitely seems to be just more appetite for risk and doing more and taking on more. Maybe in part, it's the culture, the social environment, but also the idea that I've got enough and move on to doing something else. I just saw a really interesting map which showed like every U.S. state and what the equivalent country is in terms of economic output. Interestingly enough, Texas and Canada by GDP were about similar. And then I looked up and the population of Texas is slightly less than Canada. I just thought that was like really interesting compare and contrast. So now you went to UT, you said, right? Which I believe in Canada, there's these sort of the schools that we have the Ivy League or some of the other top schools, Stanford, MIT, Caltech, et cetera. 
probably many others that we could add to the list. So in Canada, I believe UT is sort of thought of like that, but there's some other ones. So we talk about the college system in Canada and where do people go? What are different schools known for? Because I don't think most Americans really know. Most, uh, there are all of those schools are public schools, big schools. It's really hard to compare. I mean, University of Toronto is, you know, I would say world renowned. I mean, it's on near the top of the rankings, definitely top 20 or top 25 globally. And of course, the school that most people, especially in the Northeast US are more familiar with is McGill is also world renowned, but there's a lot of good schools. And across the country, there's just a lot of good schools in, in different provinces. Um, even in the Toronto area or, or Southern Ontario, there's a lot of good schools. And yeah, there is a slight, for instance, uh, University of Western Ontario is known for their business school. and It's a good program there. But University of Toronto also has a really good business school as well. And there's slight differences, probably. University of Waterloo, which is where the company Blackbird was founded. Waterloo is another one you hear about a lot. And they've got a really good program in math and computer science and that sort of stuff. And there's sort of slight differences. Maybe there's one school is known a little bit more for math or science than another, but I can't say that it's a significant difference from one school to the next. And you moved from Canada and settled in the United States now. You're American now. As somebody who grew up mostly in Canada for the first, you know, 20 some years, I suppose, what were the biggest sort of adjustments or surprises coming to this country and going to school and then settling here, working here, making a family here? Were there any or? And are there things that each country could learn from each other? I think there's a lot that you can learn from each other. What's good for the group as a whole? I think there is definitely that sort of mentality. And there is this stereotype, which I'm sure you're aware. And at least in my experience, it turned out to be largely true that Canadians are extremely sort of polite and nice people. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one thing we should learn from Canadians, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not quite every man for yourself down here, but in comparison, on a relative basis, in comparison to Canada, it does feel that way sometimes. There isn't the same kind of social systems, welfare systems, and things of that sort. But on the other hand, there is something good about the ability to work hard and go to school and benefit from that. That exists in Canada, but maybe not to the same degree that it exists here. And it probably exists more today than it did when I was growing up as well. I will say another thing that I see that's very prominent, just given you know the world that I live in, the world that you live in, is just access to capital. I think down here, if you've got a really good idea and let's say start a company, you really feel like money will find you. I mean, whether it's the initial money for venture capital, angel investors, and things of that sort, or later on private equity, the capital markets here are extremely fluid. And in Canada, historically speaking, a lot of that was controlled by the big banks. Banks are just more conservative when it comes to lending money than investors that may be. And so I'm not sure our listeners would know, but I think in Canada, unlike the United States, even banking itself is quite consolidated. There's like a big four banks that pretty much control vast majority of banking. You went to UT, so you could have stayed in Canada, built a career there. What was the impetus behind coming to the United States? And then why stay instead of maybe go back to the place you're familiar with? My undergrad degree at University of Toronto was chemistry and math. Early in my third year, I realized that I was never going to be a scientist. I had a good friend of mine who were just kind of hanging out and he goes, oh, I'm going to go up to the lab and I'm going to work on some things. And 
I literally at that moment realized that's never going to be me. I, I have no interest in that. I'm, I'm never going to be that. And so it really took some soul searching after that. Well, okay, if not that, then what am I going to do? I'd always taken business classes, accounting and things of that sort, and pretty quickly realized that yeah, this whole science thing, I was probably just not cut out for that and decided that I would try to move to the business side. I looked at different programs. I was sort of unsure, I would say still. And there's a small school in Buffalo, New York, Canisius College, and they allowed me to start part-time. So it was literally, I think, two courses. From Western Mississauga, it was like an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, door to door. Oh, so you could just drive from living in Canada to this school in the United States. Do a lot of people do that or was that pretty unusual? Yeah, yeah. There's a fair amount of people that do that. I took a couple of classes, really liked it. I took a couple more classes. And this this was like January 95, maybe. I took a couple of classes, really liked it. Took a couple more classes in the summer, really liked them. I got to a point where I took a class called Valuation of the Firm. The professor that taught that class had a chemical engineering background and then moved over into finance. I had a pretty good connection with him. I, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, oh, my background in chemistry and math was not that different from his background in chemical engineering. Doing that class, we did a capstone project where we valued a company and really got into its operations and figuring out its strengths and weaknesses, opportunities, threats to the company and decided that this is great. I'd love to be able to do this. And I would also add that interestingly, that professor had a consulting firm that he ran on the side and he offered me a, a job. And his primary client was a utility in Western New York. And you know, we processed all the paperwork and everything for to be able to do that. And then the company went into bankruptcy. So the project got put on hold. You know, I had all the paperwork done to to work in the US, but no job. And so I'd always spent a lot of time in Chicago. So got in my car, drove to Chicago, and within a month of getting there, landed with a valuation firm and yeah, maybe just to go back to answer your question, though, in terms of why not Toronto, the job environment in Toronto at that time was not great. The economic conditions were not really fantastic. And so there, there were limited job prospects. And so, but you know, to some degree, I would say it was destiny. I mean, it's like you end up landing a position, it doesn't work out, move to Chicago within a month of getting there, landed with a valuation firm and feel really fortunate that I did because I really feel like this career in valuation really... I don't think there's a better fit for me out there than what I've done, you know, over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I was speaking to a different client of mine and we were talking about how prospectively when you're working on something or you have some goal or something, it looks like it's agency, right? Like you try this, you try that, you're making these decisions to go towards what you want. But when you look back in hindsight, you find there's these few critical things that happened that didn't necessarily even want to happen that might change the course of your life in a way that maybe got you towards your goal or where you ended up, the sort of role that luck or chance sometimes plays running into one right person or a particular pivotal thing. But you don't see it when you're in it. You see it years later when you look back. I absolutely feel that way. And sometimes certain things happen with very limited effort. On the other times, you can work really hard. And as much as you try, you don't have success and you wonder why. But yeah, in hindsight, <laughs> you're appreciative of the fact that things worked out the way they did. So from that, you went to Chicago. Then you went to grad school. You got your MBA here? No, no. So that was in Buffalo. I went to grad school. And so you finished a degree there? I did. Yeah. What was next? What led to the next thing? So then, you know, I moved to Chicago. I landed with a valuation firm. 
but not the firm that you run right now. Is it a different one? No, no, a different firm, competitor, yeah. I had a great mentor, a guy by the name of John Spooty when I, I was working in, in Chicago, a great guy, really a good fit for me, not only in terms of his technical knowledge and things of that sort, but also personality and things that we had in common in terms of sports. And I remember when I was interviewing, I when I was living in Mississauga, probably towards the end of my undergrad, maybe even while I was in grad school, I was coaching a kid's basketball team. And basketball was really just starting to take off in the Toronto area. And I would play pickup ball in college and that sort of thing. And, and so I thought that'd be a good thing to coach some kids and that sort of, and John had young kids and loved the idea that I was coaching kids basketball and that sort of thing. So there was an instant connection there and yeah, it was a good fit and somebody who had a significant impact on my career, the technical knowledge and things of that sort. I couldn't have asked for a better teacher. Is he still in the business? He is, yeah. And then what brought you to the valuation research in sort of the New York area then? I guess I spent three or four years in Chicago. The name of that firm was Marshall and Stevens. They were looking to grow and develop their presence on the East Coast. And so there was an idea that, hey, I wasn't from Chicago, so I wasn't necessarily stuck to any one location that at some point I would move. You know, it was interesting with the timing. I mean, initially it was sort of like, oh, get, you know, after a couple of years, maybe you'll move out there and things are going pretty well in Chicago. So I was like, oh, maybe you don't need to. And, and then I got an opportunity with them to move out to their New York office, decided I would take it. At that age, you're not solid sort of in any, I mean, th things happen quickly. You know, you're young, you haven't bought a house, you don't have a mortgage, any of that sort of stuff. You can move quickly. So I did. And, you know, I was working out of New York City with that same firm uh, for a couple of more years. And then you got the opportunity to join Valuation Research? Yeah, I did. I mean, I'd say there were a couple of things that were happening is one, you know, I no longer was working with John, who was a great mentor. So losing that, I will say, secondly, I was in the South Tower. My train had come into the South Tower on 9-11. The North Tower was hit and I saw everything happen right in front of my eyes. In between, you know, I'd just gotten married. My wife was expecting within a month or two. And I just thought it was time to make a move. And at this point, I was say five years into my career and you kind of get that itch of, you know, is there something else somewhere else? And VRC, I had been talking to them for a while. I'd interviewed with them maybe a year and a half prior to that. It wasn't the right time. VRC is valuation research. That's right. Valuation Research Corp. Yeah. It wasn't the right time for them or for me, but all of a sudden after 9-11, after a few other things, we thought it eh, might be the right time. And then I was living in Princeton, New Jersey area, and they had a sizable office right there in Princeton and you know, literally 10 minutes from my house. And I thought that would be from a quality of life perspective, it would be good. And I will also add, because it is kind of interesting, I took a pay cut, I took a title cut. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And you know, also the mentors that were available to me, that's probably a critical item in the decision-making is there were a few senior people at PRC, who I just thought I could learn a lot from. I'm still only five years or so into my career. And those folks would be uh, really good mentors for me. And they turned out to be that way. Going back to it, since you mentioned it, uh, 2001, I think we had probably similar arcs. So I was going into the Trade Center basically every day also, because my 
two investment banks that I worked for were on one side or the other. For me, it was kind of a traumatic experience. What was it like for you being so close to ground zero? My office wasn't in the tower, but I used to take the train, the path train into the South Tower every day. And yeah, traumatic for sure. I mean, it's, I still remember the day like it was yesterday. I would say for about 10 years afterwards, any time I would see kind of a perfect day, 70 degrees, blue skies, it would bring me back to that day. So you joined Valuation Research. You said you took a title cut. So what was your title when you joined? I think I was a director at Marshall and Stevens and I came into VRC, I think as an associate, maybe it was a senior associate, something like that. There's definitely a step down. You're a co-CEO now, so I think it worked out all right. Yeah, it worked out. What does a company like VRC do? Many people probably know about the investment banks. We know about private equity firms. Maybe not everybody does, but VRC, I think is sort of a boutique. So talk about that area of valuations, whether it was Marshall and Stevens or VRC or whoever else might be in it. What's the field about? It's a definitely a niche area in comparison to an investment banking or accounting or something else. So we're specialists in valuation. Um, and I'd say my role in the last 20 years has basically been associated with transactions. So whenever there's a transaction, you need somebody to come in and value the company, value the assets, value the liabilities as part of that transaction. It could be for accounting purposes. It could be for tax. It could be for the board. That's what we do. It's very technical. You know, investment bankers, no disrespect, do a lot of the same sort of things, but probably not at the same degree of dotting the I's and crossing the T's that we do. We're specialists in valuation. We do our best to come up with the right value. We expect the values to stand up to further scrutiny, whether it's from the IRS or the SEC, the PCAOB, shareholders, board members, others. So there's lots of scrutiny around the work that we do, starting with the management team. It's a unique field. It's a niche field. But again, when you think about my background with chemistry and math, I've always been very quantitative. And I'd, I'd also say sort of a people person. And I like to teach. And I like to learn. And I also like short projects. The idea of being on a project that lasted a year or two years or, or beyond is not appealing. So this kind of checked off all the boxes for me. I, the math part of it, being in front of clients, helping themselves problems. And also I've been able to do a lot of other things sort of in the industry. I present a lot. I write a lot and just very involved with a lot of different aspects. So for me personally, it just checks a lot of boxes. How many firms are there that are specialists in the same kind of thing that you guys are? And who are the clients? You touch on what they use it for. And if I'm understanding it right, I mean, it's pretty consequential, right? Because whatever valuation you come up with, it's going to actually change people's financials, what value they get redeemed or how much depreciation they get to take uh, or how much amortization or whatever that actually changes tax returns and things like that. So it's pretty important, I guess, to get it right. So just touch on that. Who uses valuation research or other firms like valuation research? How many other firms are there? What's that industry environment look like as one of multiple firms? It's a very fragmented firm. There's several big firms, and I put us kind of in the group of the big firms, but it's, you know, there's some absolutely massive entities like the big four accounting firms, and there's some other independents. There's also the next group of accounting firms as well that all have valuation groups. We're sort of in between. We're not quite as big as the big four, but we're sizable. And then you've got a bunch of other independent firms, and some of those independent firms are literally 
one, two, three people working out of their home. There's hundreds of firms, maybe even into the thousands, to be honest with you. But it can range anywhere from the one individual who dabbles in valuations to a big four accounting firm that might have four or 500 people that focus on valuation. What are the main sort of groups of customer bases and how do they find and pick among all of these different options? It's really wide ranging there as well. Look, our client base are public companies, private equity firms, hedge funds, BDCs. That probably constitutes 90% of who we're dealing with. You can also have valuations for gifts and estate purposes. In that situation, you might have a family that is a client. It can, again, kind of range from individuals who are gifting shares or selling assets all the way up to you know the biggest public company or private equity firm that you can think of. And I will also add, there's lots of other stakeholders though as well, right? So there's the attorneys, the accountants, and all the other advisors around a deal that they may not be your client, but they are involved. And so there's many others that are involved in the process of doing or reviewing evaluations or you're using evaluations that we do. Is the economic model more of a consulting type model or is it sort of like a recurring model? What's the model that you guys charge on and sort of deliver value on? What's the current? It's consulting. It's project-based, fixed fee. Do the clients tend to constantly come back to you for updated valuations? More and more these days. I would say that you rewound 20 years or so. It was very transactional, one project here, one project there. Today, I think what you see is highly recurring. Valuation is at the center of every business transaction. And so as a result of that, there's a need. I think the industry has matured significantly over the time I've been doing valuations. And so I'd say, again, if you went back 20 or 25 years ago, it was far more art than science. Today, I'd say there's a pretty good balance between art and science, and it's far more recurring than you would have imagined. And especially as you think about private equity and hedge funds and clients like that, they're in the business of doing deals. So there's a high degree of recurring work associated with that. Since you touched on it, what, talk about sort of how things were when you joined or maybe when you joined VRC and what's changed over the 15, 20 years that you've been in it at a somewhat more senior level. Do you mean at the firm or within the profession or? In the firm and in the profession, both. I think with regard to the firm, the firm is far bigger today. And as a result of that, has more depth. And one of the challenges we used to have, the old saying that, you know, nobody got fired for hiring IBM. Whereas today, in, in many ways, we used to compete, but a lot of, you know, hustling to compete, I would say. Whereas today, we've got as much depth as anybody. A lot of those issues, I would say, no longer exist or don't exist to the same degree as they did years ago. I would say the industry is maturing as well. And a lot of best practice guides out there on how to value companies, how to think about some of the controversial issues like control premiums or how to value customers or how to come up with discount rates and things of that sort. I think there's a lot less diversity in practice than there used to be 20 or 25 years ago. I think all things are moving towards just more maturity in the firm, more maturity in the profession as well. So you joined as a director, maybe associate, junior director, something like that. What year did you become CEO or co-CEO? My effective date was January 1st, 2014. I joined VRC, say October 2001. And so 
was that 12, 13 years, I guess, that, that I was with the firm before becoming co-CEO. But I would say that there were several key benchmarks along the way. I mean, initially it was sort of building up expertise and really learning from the people that had been there for a long time and working with them under their guidance. And what I would say is just a safe environment. You get stretched, but you don't get stretched too far. You bend, but you don't break. And just working on a lot of deals. A number of deals I worked on with just kind of the who's who of corporate America. It was Kraft and Pepsi and the Carlisle Group and Siemens and Amerisource Bergen and Quest Diagnose. I mean, it's just the who's who of corporate America and some of the smartest people in America. And you, it's, you either sink or you swim you know, in that environment. And, uh, you got to keep up with their pace. And I absolutely love that aspect of it and love the fact that, you know, I had support. There's a gentleman who I replaced, Mark Bradabo. He was co-CEO. And outside of my dad, I don't know if there's a person that had a bigger impact on my life just in terms of being a mentor personally and professionally. I just can't say enough in terms of what he taught me and, and the framework. And I think there's a common theme there, just finding mentors like that. It's just unbelievable. And there's others as well, you know, Bill Hughes and Neil Kelly and Summer Parrish and others who were extremely helpful, but that was critical. And then I would also say that finding time to get involved with more than just doing the job. I got involved with the industry. That was something for us as a firm that as we looked upon the next levels of growth, the thought was to have somebody who can interact with the FASB and the SEC and the big four accounting firms and things of that sort would be helpful. And so I started doing some of those things. And I would also say that I think it was about 2006 or seven. I got to the point where Mark said to me, we'd like you to spend more time in front of clients. At the time, I really had to think hard about this because what it meant was I was no longer going to be the person that was doing the valuations. And I also wasn't the person necessarily getting credit for selling the valuation. So if you looked at as a number on a spreadsheet, I wouldn't exist. But on the other hand, I was in the middle of everything, just making sure that projects got done properly, making sure they got sold properly, maintaining the relationship and all of that sort of stuff. And that turned out to be really beneficial because then I'm the big sports guy. If your value is only based on where you are on the score sheet or the leaderboard, you're probably underestimating sort of your value to the organization or to the team. And once I got comfortable with that and I trusted Mark and I trusted others that they were leading me in the right direction. But once I got comfortable with that, there was a lot of synergy. You know, it became being able to leverage people on the team and move things in a different direction. And I'd say that was another one of those points that was a turning point for me. Yeah, there's a couple of threads there that I'd like to pick up on real quick. So one is you mentioned the importance of mentors and you mentioned even the first pivotal mentor that you had when you were in the Buffalo area. So how does somebody, a young person who might be listening to this or even a, someone our age with a career ahead of them, how do you find and cultivate mentors? How does that happen? Any thoughts on that? I can't say that it was anything that I did with a purpose. I'd say there was sort of a natural association, people that you found things in common with, that you were comfortable with. Again, it was never one of those things where I thought, oh, that person would be a great mentor or anything like that. I'd say much more about the relationship. And what I found was, quite frankly, people were open to helping. People were open to mentoring. If you ask Mark or John or Neil or anybody else, I don't know if they would say that they were a mentor. <laughs> you know, They were just kind of doing what was appropriate and reasonable and things of that sort. But clearly, they had a huge impact. Do you see yourself mentoring other people and how does that happen? 
Is it pure chance? It's not pure chance. Again, I go back to it's a relationship. I will say in my role today, one of the things that I absolutely love is the ability to help people. Is that mentoring or is that helping? I don't know, but I look at that as a critical part of my role, but it's nothing forced. It's just sort of being willing to help, developing a relationship. And with some people, it doesn't go further. Maybe there isn't the interest on one side or the other. And for others, for some reason, it clicks. I think there's got to be an appetite for it on both sides. There's got to be something in common where you feel comfortable. And it could be, you know, as I again go back to the fact that I've always played a lot of sports and, you know, I can relate to other people that have played sports and been in a team environment and things of that sort. So maybe some level would you connect other than work? That's some shared interests, shared values, shared something. Shared values, I think, is a critical part of it. And it doesn't have to be identical, but yeah, some degree of shared value is important. And the other piece that you mentioned, and I think was quite insightful, was that you were sort of conscious of finding time to give back to the industry or get involved. Touch on that for a second. And let's say somebody's listening to this. You could be in any field. How would you, as a young person who may be wanting to rise in your profession, how do you find those opportunities? And how does that interrelate back to your career inside some firm? I wouldn't say that I necessarily did it with the purpose of helping my career. And it's helped far more than I ever thought was possible, quite frankly. But it's good to be involved and it's good to network and connect with people in in your industry. And something that many of us and myself included get stuck on is the idea of a quid pro quo, especially early on in your career that, yeah, I'll help you if you help me and scratch my back, I'll scratch your But actually, Mark gave me a book probably in the 2005-2006 time period called Rainmaking Made Simple by a guy named Mark Mariara. And a lot of interesting points in there. But one of them was, don't expect a quid pro quo. Help anybody and everybody, whether they're your competitor, it doesn't matter who it is. And you'll kind of build a cloud around you and people start calling you and referring work to you and giving you a thumbs up and, and all of that sort of stuff on different things. And I would say that I definitely found that, that once I let go of you know, an expectation of a quid pro quo and just started helping people in my network, my network grew. And all of a sudden I started getting calls from people. Just last week, I got a call from somebody who got my name from somebody who I don't know who got my name from somebody. And it's turned out really well. And again, going back to your question in terms of working in the industry, my thoughts of doing stuff in the industry were just to help. No expectation of anything in return, but I got a lot in return. I think there's a lot to that. And actually, I hadn't heard of that book, so I'm definitely going to check it out. So you said that it was Rainmaking Made Simple. But you know, that reminds me, there's a newer book, which I believe we've, we might have even traded some notes on or something, but I think it's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And he has a similar theme of, it turns out that he studied givers and over the arc of their careers, they tend to really get noticed for the giving that they do. That's a great insight. I love that book. It really helps understand why some people are more successful than others. And it's fantastic. What do you find as a leader of an organization that 
you either have to level up on or you're like, I never realized it was like that for the CEO or whatever. When you were just one of the consultants, what kind of insights or other stories, whatever that you may have that could shed some light onto what it's like to transition to being the leader of an organization and then the job when you're there? The first two years were really tough because I was basically doing both jobs. On one hand, drinking from a fire hose in terms of trying to understand the new position and what it would take and what's involved. And at the same time, still had my old clients, was still very involved. And interestingly, one of my clients, which was public at the time, was going private. And so it was a massive undertaking in terms of the valuation. And so to lead that project whilst trying to learn the roles and responsibilities of being co-CEO were challenging. So I would say actually the first two years were pretty rough. I'm not sure that I necessarily even wanted the job the first two years. Probably would have been happy if somebody said, hey, go back to your old job. But once I got over that hurdle, it's been fantastic. I mean, it is just, I like helping people. I've got the ability now to help people and it, it could be sharing some resources, being available, being a coach. I look at my job and I'll use a sports analogy. When I was playing hockey, I scored a lot of goals, put up a lot of points and was pretty well known for doing that. When I played basketball, uh, I was kind of the big guy under the net. I wasn't taking a three-point shot or anything like that. I got the ball under the net. I put it up. A grab rebound, set picks, things of that sort. And that's kind of my job. You know, today when you look at it, I mean, I present probably 30 times a year at different conferences within the industry, with outside the industry, write articles, take the lead on certain firm related issues. And over the last year uh, with COVID and all that, there's been several. And you just think about, you know, the changing dynamics in terms of people working from home and all of that sort of stuff, the uncertainty in the environment. So that's 50%, but the other 50% is just being in the background, supporting people, helping people, helping to make them as successful as they can be. And, you know, maybe they need help in one or two areas. In, in my role, it's a bigger picture role. I get to see a lot of different people and different approaches and also have access to resources where I can help. It's, you know, 50% very prominent, 50% behind the scenes, just helping others be as successful as they can be. As you look out now, we're actually at an unusual time. It's May of 2021. We've had been in a pandemic now for a little over a year. It seems like things are starting to open up. As you look forward over the next you know, year, two years, three years, what are the big things that you've been spending the most time thinking about, focusing on, <clears throat> that you're either optimistic about or concerned about, whether it be business-wise or even just in terms of the state of the world? What are you spending time focusing on, thinking about in this kind of interesting time? There's lots there with both of them. What does the future look like? We've had now 14 months or so working from home. Quite frankly, it's gone pretty well and people like it. I myself, over that time period, have been into the office maybe three or four times only. If I went in the office, I would be on Zoom just like I am from home. I wouldn't change what I do at all. So just trying to understand, you know, do we get back to some sort of work from the office or a hybrid model or what we will do with regard to that? And there's, it's more than just, oh, people work from home or work from the office. There's real costs involved. We've got nine, 10 offices, leases that are coming due. And do you re-up 
if you take a fraction of the space that you were looking at before, layered on top of all of that is the market. It's tough to hire right now. And at least in our space, certain firms are saying, hey, you don't ever have to come back into the office. And, and so from a market standpoint, I think we may have the answer in terms of allowing people to continue to work from home. Beyond that, there's always clouds on the horizon and things of that sort. On the other hand, what I would say is I'm very optimistic in terms of where we are as a firm, the depth we have, the professionals we have. It's as good as ever, maybe better than ever. And there's always certain clouds on the horizon that you have to be aware of and you have to account for. And, and you know, AI may be one of them as well. And that's something that you hear about a lot. But I'm really optimistic. I mean, we've got a great group of people. We've got a great management team. It's uh, colleagues that are really pulling in the right direction. The culture of the firm is really good, although we'll continue to evolve over time. And in our business, it's hard to predict or project what three years from now is going to look like or five years from now is going to look like. So we've got to make it through the current workload, which is substantial. Make sure that we're busy, but not too busy or hire so that people do get a break and that sort of thing as well. There's a lot to think about. I mean, it's, as you know, I wish I had a crystal ball that could tell me sort of what the future is going to look like, but you got to prepare for a lot of different things, maintain a lot of flexibility. I think that's a critical item so that you can adapt to whatever the future brings us. I wonder if you could think of one book or maybe a person or an experience that had sort of the greatest or one of the greatest impacts on you so far and what that was and tell the story or tell the takeaway from that. I would say there's two books that I think of, and one is Shoe Dog. It's the story of Nike, Phil Knight, and just sort of everything that he went through and growing and developing Nike and all the challenges, the tax issues, the personnel issues. And it's an unbelievable story of that. The one part of Shoe Dog that I bring up regularly with as I work with some entrepreneurs and, and all of that. When I got to the end of Shoe Dog, I wondered, well, we know Phil Knight did really well and we see the value of Nike and all of that, but what happened to all the people that helped him along the way? Because they really didn't talk too much about sort of the people that had invested, whether it's money or time. And he took care of everybody. He absolutely took care of everybody. And so I thought that was fantastic. I mean, there was one individual, I forget his name, whose parents had lent Phil Knight some money and he was in a crash crunch and they thought they were doing, their son had a disability and they thought they were doing just to have their son keep his job and that sort of thing. And not only did Nike or Phil Knight return the money, but it was like they had a piece of Nike and it it worked out really well. The other one, it's also a sports related, maybe that's the common theme here, but the biography of Bill Walsh, who was the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers in the, in the 80s. The title of the book was The Score Will Take Care of Itself. And, and he was absolutely adamant on just doing things the right way, playing the right way, and not worrying about the score. The score will take care of itself. There's a lot of truth to that in life. You do things for the right reasons. And as you heard earlier from myself, when I joined VRC, it wasn't because of the pay. I actually got a pay cut. It wasn't for the title. I got a title cut. And it was for the mentors and the environment and all of that sort of stuff. And I think it worked out pretty well. I have to echo your comment. I mean, I loved Shoe Dog. I didn't know that great story about how Phil Knight took care of everybody, but I have not read the second book and I'm going to definitely check it out. I actually, that reminds me of a quote that Buffett has, which is to ask yourself whether you have a internal scorecard or an external scorecard, whether you really try to do things for trying to get other people to think a certain way about you 
or whether you really try to score based on your own internal metrics. And of course, he's an advocate for the latter. Thanks for a wonderful, fascinating discussion. Loved all these different insights that you shared. Appreciated your time today. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Yeah, this was great. Enjoyed being here. Same here. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking to PJ today. We talked about the need for electricians and specifically TV technicians following World War II, a historical footnote that led PJ's family to emigrate to England and eventually to Canada. We also talked about the British influence on Canada. For example, the Queen is on the Canadian currency, and there are many other things that Canadians have adopted from the British, as well as many ways in which they are more like the United States. I'm thankful that PJ lives up to the stereotype of Canadians being very nice people. It was a pleasure having the opportunity to catch up with him and learn more about his origin story. I'd also encourage you to read the books that we mentioned on this show. Rainmaking Made Simple by Mark Marea and Give and Take by Professor Adam Grant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compound Ideas, hosted by Ken Majmidar of Ridgewood Investments. Connect with Ken, learn more about the show, and never miss an episode at compoundideashow.com. Ken Majmidar is the founder of Ridgewood Investments and several other affiliated companies. All opinions expressed by Ken and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ridgewood Investments or any of its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. Clients of Ridgewood Investments and its affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.